This morning we find ourselves in the last Sunday of our series that we're calling Ask, which has to do with questions that we have solicited from people about the news. What one question would you most like answered about the news, or what would you think would be most helpful if it was answered? And we've talked about, you know, will we get blown up, and how do we live in a polarized world, and who, who's going to be next? And there's been all sorts of <laughs> very timely, you know, news articles that have to do with the topics that we're talking about for sure. And this morning, our question has to do with Me Too. And, you know, for lack of a better way to kind of put all the different questions that we got together, we said, how did Me Too become the person of the year for 2017? And you recall, in 2017, Time Magazine named the people who started this Me Too movement as the persons of the year. As you think about that, I, I need to say a few things at the beginning. One of the things that I feel like I need to say is that I'm not an expert in this. Uh, thankfully, I'm not an expert. I, and by God's grace, I've not experienced sexual abuse or harassment or anything like that. And so I'm not speaking from personal experience. And I'm trusting that the Lord can help me not to be hurtful or to be somehow not helpful to people who have experienced that. But... On the other hand, it is a fact of life and it is statistically impossible that in a group this size that nobody has experienced that. In fact, it's statistically impossible really that if you look up and down your row, maybe the row in front of you and back of you, that 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 small of a segment of you have not experienced some kind of sexual trauma. And so, just so that you were clear about what Me Too is. I, 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 wasn't, I was thinking maybe I didn't need to do this. But I sat next to like a 35-year-old woman on the plane the other day. She didn't know what Me Too was. And so I thought I better include this as part of what I'm talking about. Me Too is a Twitter hashtag that started off a movement that is really a statement that a person has experienced sexual injury through harassment, rape, or abuse. And there may be a little more variety around the edges of that, but that's at the heart of it. And actually, this, this woman that I, uh, that I talked to on the plane, I, I, I mentioned that I was talking about this. And when she, she didn't know what it was, once I told her, then, of course, she had lots to say about it. And, you know, one of the things that she said, for those of you that are... In a, in a place that is, you know, where you, where you haven't experienced something like this. I mean, she, she said, it's like, you can think of it like this. I mean, because she, she understood. I said, well, I just don't. She said, you're a man. That's what she said. I said, yes. And she said, think of it like this. She said, imagine your house got broken into. And our house did get broken into once. And we, we came in on the people who broke into our house. She said, imagine your house got broken into. And she said, if that's the case, uh, you don't feel safe in your house anymore. Your house doesn't feel clean anymore. Uh, you don't feel comfortable there. 
And she said, then just translate that and say, you know what? If that's your body that gets broken into, that's how you feel. Only there's probably additional compounding pain on the outside of that. And so, my task today, I mean, I'm not going to solve society's problems. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fix, you know, how bad this has been in the world. I mean, really, you think about this. Um, do you know what was going on 20 years ago this week? Those of you who are, well, I'd say history bus, but I could just say older. <laughs> 20 years ago this week, the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal erupted. And that was all over. We were talking about this 20 years ago. It was 21 years ago when Larry Nasser began to abuse girls at Michigan State University and he was sentenced to 175 years this week for, for injuring so, so many. And it was devastating. And it's, it's here today. It's been around for a long time. I imagine it's not going to go anywhere. And so how does the good news of Jesus interface Me Too? How do... How do people who trust in Jesus live in a world that's dangerous, live in a world that's hurtful, live in a world where Me Too has to exist? In order to, in order to get there, I want to I talk about the Gospel in a way that you may not have thought about it before. Because it occurred to me that as we are injured, and particularly if there is sexual injury, that the one thing that accompanies sexual injury is shame. It's the fact that I don't want to talk to anybody about it. I don't want anybody to know that it happened to me. I want to keep it quiet. And if you feel that way, maybe, maybe some of you have even done things yourself that you don't want to tell anybody about. And that feeling is a feeling of shame. And if it happens to you, you know, uh, you know that that's what you're feeling. Um, Brene Brown, who I don't know as a friend of Jesus, but has done a lot of work on guilt and shame, gives a helpful distinction here. And she says that guilt is focused on behavior. Shame is focused on self. See, we're, we're pretty used to thinking about behavior. If you do something, you're guilty. But what if you don't do something? Or somebody does something to you? Then the only thing left is for you to to focus on yourself and you feel shameful. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt tries, you try to alleviate guilt by saying, I'm sorry I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm sorry I am a mistake. And it's that feeling, I think, that is, um, is, is central to how we cope with this, how we deal with it, how we move forward in a Me Too world. 
most of us aren't used to thinking about Jesus in terms like that. Most of us think about Jesus and most of us think about the good news in terms of guilt. I've done something bad and God will forgive me. Our, our way of looking at the world, our worldview, you might say, is a worldview of guilt and innocence. And what do I do with that? I, if I have done something guilty, if I have sinned, then I confess my guilt and I ask for forgiveness and God forgives me and declares me innocent. And for most of us, that's the only category that we have for the good news of Jesus. And for the most part, that's a cultural category where we see, uh, where we see the gospel as um, judicial, determining guilt and innocence, right and wrong. The gospel does more than that for us, though. There's another way of looking at the good news of Jesus, and that is from a shame-honor perspective. There is shame in those feelings that I was talking about that, that haunt me, and I don't want to tell anyone because if I tell someone, they'll put me out. I'll be out outside the people that I love and the people that accept me or the, that say they accept me. And so I feel shame and I don't want that. I want to belong. And the antidote to shame is belonging. And see, one of the beautiful things then that the Gospel does is it reminds us that no matter what you have done and no matter what has been done to you, that you can belong. You can belong to God. You can belong to God's people. And in place of shame, there is honor. Another way of thinking about this would be uh, if you're thinking about guilt and innocence, what you have done when you sin is you transgress the law you have done wrong and you need to have that forgiven. If you're thinking about shame and honor, what you have done when you sin is you have dishonored God. And you must be made right then again with God. You must be made right in relationship with God. Let me say it that way. And so, if I want to say, how does the Gospel connect to me too? I want to step back just one step and say, how does the Gospel, how does the Gospel connect to how I feel when I'm victimized? How does the gospel feel? How does the gospel affect me when I feel shame? And so, what I'd like to do is is really what I've done the last four weeks, and and that is to is to kind of walk through the gospel and say, you know what, the good news of Jesus, the story of God, addresses it addresses that feeling, it addresses the 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 shame or the the dirt or the um, awfulness that I feel in my soul. And we begin with creation. There are four movements, if you remember. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration in the story of God. And we're going to begin at the beginning because I think this explains a, a lot about why we feel the way we feel. And the first, the first movement is creation. What did God do? God made human beings 
in His image after His likeness. God made human beings in His image after His likeness. And so if you simply think of it that way, and you think of God and His image, you're going to think of honoring God. God is glorious. God is somebody to honor. Human beings made in His image should be honored. He made them in His image, in His likeness. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. It's very interesting that gender from the very beginning was part of the human identity. The, the foundation of human identity is image of God. And uh, the earliest explanation of that image of God has to do with gender. And so God made human beings in His image and He made them male and female. If you go to chapter 2 of creation, God had just made a, a, a woman to be um, suitable for the man and for them to be together. And it says, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. There is this idealization of a sexual relationship that you have as God created it that should be seamless between people. It should be comfortable. It should be pleasant. It should be joyful. It should be intimate. That is, that is the polar opposite of Me Too, isn't it? And one of the things that you need to know is that, that you, our culture, I mean, our culture at large, and you in particular, are able to say that line is crooked. Because you were made to have a straight line. Because you were made in the image of God and there was supposed to be this beautiful sexual relationship between males and females. As God created us, all of us have this deep longing for Eden, I think, where we're made that way and there is no shame. It says a man and his wife are both naked and we're not ashamed. See, that's what, that's what we all wish were the case. That, I think, is why our culture is so preoccupied with sex. is because it is so deeply human and the, the um, reflection, or the, the, the echo of Eden is still ringing in our ears and we say, if only... And there are all of these attempts and perversion to get back to the way that God made us in His image, male and female, unashamed. And you don't recognize that hardly at all in our world today. But we were created and our identity is to be honored as those who are made in God's image and unashamed. And so, if nothing else, I hope that that has some explanatory value for you. Why the preoccupation with sex? Why is it in all the movies? Why is it in all the magazines? Why can I not even read a story on the internet about Me Too without seeing an advertisement at the bottom 
for some hot picture from the 70s. It's crazy. There's this preoccupation, though, because we were made for more. And the second movement of God's story as we go through is that this shameless world of peace and harmony and love and intimacy and acceptance gets broken when Adam and Eve dishonor God. God said, I want it this way. Adam and Eve said, no, we want it another way. And they dishonored God in their choice. And when they did, this is what happened. The eyes of them both were open. What's the first thing that happens? The first thing that happens is this deep ache in their heart. They knew they were naked. Something's not right. They felt for the first time that shame that we are so familiar with. The dirt that is in our lives that we wish wasn't there, they felt that for the first time. They knew that they were naked. So, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They did their best to cover up, to hide. So I mentioned that shame was that feeling that you didn't want to tell anyone. Adam and Eve didn't want to tell anyone. They began to hide. They not only hid from each other, they hid themselves from the presence of God. As was their pattern, they, they had this relationship with God. They belonged to God. There was a, an intimacy and a closeness with God. And each evening, apparently, they would walk in the cool of the day with God. And God began that walk. And the man and his wife ran. They were no longer in this relationship with God. They were on the outside looking in and they knew it. And so they hid from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. And so this humanity broke at this point. Humanity inserted this, this poison that um, not only caused guilt, as human beings sinned against God and one another, but it also caused shame as they experienced their sin and as they experienced their um, brokenness toward God and toward one another. This relationship, the relationships that they were made for, got broken. tells us later that there was... Uh, you might say a gender war as a part of the curse. I mentioned this last week. The last phrase here, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There will be this, this, this fight for, uh, between men and women that we see later. And I just want to say that as you think about this, that this brokenness between men and women has played out in the entire human history. Not just, not just this last week in uh, the trial of Larry Nasser. Not just, not just in the past four months as person after person has been exposed and lost their jobs. Not the last 20 years since the scandal. that we, But all of human history has experienced this brokenness. 
I decided that I'm not going to tell you Bible stories this morning. Because they're everywhere. I mean, those of you who have experienced this, there are heroes for you in the Bible. Hagar was used by Abraham and abused by Abraham's wife, uh, Sarah. And she, she was run out. And in the wilderness, God came to her and said, I will be with you. Rachel and Leah and their, and their um, servant girls, Bilhah and Silpa, all used in this power play with Jacob. Dinah was uh, violated by Shechem and the, the whole city wiped out by her brothers. And I could, I'm just going to stop. I told you I wasn't going to tell you Bible stories because they're awful. And there's more than just one page of them. And they have to do with Jesus. And I love how, I love how the New Testament opens. The New Testament opens with Matthew chapter 1. That's not rocket science. But Matthew chapter 1 opens with the genealogy. And Bathsheba is in the genealogy. And Tamar is in the genealogy. And Rahab the harlot is in the genealogy. And Mary, the unmarried mother of Jesus is the hero of the opening of the New Testament. There's a woman at the well ostracized because of her history. woman at the well, everyone knew her story. I mean, the woman who washed Jesus' feet, everybody knew her story and warned Jesus as though He didn't when He not only accepted her But he said, everywhere the Gospel goes forward, her story will be told. And so this brokenness, we are not the first generation to experience this brokenness. If they had Twitter back then, there could have been Me Too in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Bible, for the most part, treats it matter-of-factly. It doesn't always moralize on it. It doesn't always say, well, here's the quick and easy solution to it. It just says the fact of human existence is that men mistreat women. And it's wrong. But it's there. That's the first two movements of the good news. The next movement of the good news is redemption where, where God writes this wrong. And, and as I mentioned already, He writes this wrong through the tale of all the people who experience the wrong. They all were ancestors. Not, well, not all of them, but, but um, Tamar and Bathsheba and Rahab, all of them were ancestors of Jesus as He entered this world to restore human beings to their relationship with God so that they could be rightly restored to one another. And he did it by experiencing the shame and sharing in the shame that human beings perpetrate on one another. He was despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Or Hebrews 12.2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. I mean, here He was hanging naked on the cross, the most shameful death you could imagine. And Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to enter into that so that I might so that I might rescue people from their shame. And now He is honored. He went from shame to honor, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's a statement as much of the, the effect of this Redeemer. Fear not, you will not be ashamed, you will not be confounded, you will not be disgraced, and you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Yes, you can think of Jesus as coming to alleviate guilt. But I think it would also be helpful for you to realize Jesus came to restore you to relationship with God so that the shame can be taken away. That very feeling, that very, the, the very things that have happened to you or that you have even done to yourself that make you ashamed and make you put up a wall between you and other people and you and God. Jesus in entered that, embraced it, so that you will no longer be ashamed. And so, the Gospel has everything to do with the human experience, really. And I, and I hope that you recognize that this human experience is something that Jesus entered into. He didn't stand outside and say, I'm going to save them and I'm going to keep my hands clean. I'm going to save them and you know what? I, I feel really bad for them. I'm not going to enter in. And I, no, He said, I said, I'm going to experience. When it says that He was um, a high priest touched with our infirmities, this is what He meant. It didn't just mean he got the flu or caught a cold when, like human beings, it meant that he experienced the brokenness and the shame from being mistreated by other people that we experience. <clears throat> the most beautiful promises in all the scripture is. Here it says, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. It's an Old Testament promise brought forward several times in the New Testament. The invitation to believe in Jesus, yes, is an invitation to have your guilt forgiven, but it's also an invitation to no longer feel like you must be ashamed. Because it is an honor for you to believe. The opposite of that shame Jesus restores to you and gives you a place of honor. For those of you who believe, but for those who don't believe, they stumble at this cornerstone. And then He says, you have a place. You are accepted. You are invited in close to Jesus. You are chosen. You are royal. You are honored. You are a holy nation. You are people belonging to God that you might proclaim the excellencies or the honor of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Those of you who believe will no longer experience the shame that says, 
I am a mistake. Instead, Jesus came that you might be honored, the opposite of a mistake, that you might be honorable, chosen, royal, holy, a people belonging to God. No longer an outcast, no longer afraid, no longer feeling like you're not worthy. But rather, included in what God wants to do in this world. And of course, then God's story continues from creation to the brokenness that we all experience to His redemption in Jesus. Jesus making the wrongs of this world right and then restoring things ultimately. Our hope is while we will live in a world that has a Me Too hashtag the rest of our lives, we will not live in that world forever. Revelation 21 says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men and He will dwell with them. and They will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. So the barriers that Adam and Eve put up in the very beginning, realizing they're not worthy, they're not worth being with God, those have all been torn down by Jesus. The shame is gone. God is our God. And this is what it says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That is the Christian hope. That is the Me Too hope. That one day will be completely healed. And he who seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said to me, It's done. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, the one who really longs for this life, this healing, this freedom from shame, this cleansing. The one who's thirsty, I'll give from the spring of the water of life without to the one who conquers will have his heritage I will be his God and he'll be my son and that feeling like I'm all alone in this you're not all alone in this and ultimately ultimately God will be with you and you will be his and he will be yours And all this old will be passed away. And that's the Christian hope. And so, let me assure you that the Gospel of Jesus Christ intersects your pain. The Gospel of Jesus Christ touches the very depth of the not only the guilt, but the shame that we all experience in this world in one way or another. And I hope that that has some explanatory values from what we long, why we long for it to be better and why we experience it as bad as it is. But beyond just explanatory value, the, the sub-question, 
How do I live in a sexually broken world? I have some things that may, may not be enough for some of you, may be more than some of you want. But there are a few things that, that, that are being put forward as answers that I just want to comment on briefly. And I'm, I'm, not even going to bring this, I'm not even going to bring much Scripture here. But one of the false solutions to this, even in the church, is modesty. I think it's very easy to, to speak to young women as though somehow they're creating the problem. And the problem is not young women. I'm not advocating for immodesty. Please don't misunderstand. I'll read more in here than your, is here. But, but each person is responsible before God, for themselves, for their attitudes, for their morality, for their uh, cleanliness and purity. And for us to say, well, we dress differently and that will solve the problem. That isn't the case. Another, I think, false solution is consent. Now, trust me, consent is better than not consent. And consent is... Um, consent really is what differentiates uh, this harassment, abuse, and all of that from uh, from not abuse. Okay, but consent is only part of the solution because as as you've also seen in the news, if you've been watching, trust me, I've been watching. I've been having to think about this way too much. But consent is a moving target. And it moves with power just like abuse moves with power. And so you can say, oh, well, you know, ensure consent. You can't ensure consent. And I think my humble opinion and what I've showed you so far in God's creation is that God intended, God intended something better than mere consent. God intended uh, consent and commitment. God intended a consent and a covenant where the relationship had protection around the relationship. Where there would be an intimacy and a closeness and a lack of shame. And so I think, I think that the, the solution is much deeper than mere consent. And I don't think this, and this is, this is what you hear. This is what you hear from students at Michigan State University. This is what you hear at the Women's March. This is, this is the way the world is reacting to this. That anger, if I just have my chance to vent my anger, then that will make the problem go away. I, I think that's a false solution too. I think we should be angry about this because it's an injustice. Because it's wrong. It's evil perpetrated from one person to another. But that's not going to solve the problem and it's not, going to, it's not going to fix the wound. It's not going to heal the brokenhearted. And it's not going to, it's not going to um, take the shame away. I'm going to say the same thing I said last week when we were talking about the other side of this. 
is I think that one of the things that has to happen is that the church has to be safe. And I, I mean, I mean, safe from perpetrators. I mean, we have child, uh, we have child safety procedures here. And I, I'm so thankful for that. And I'm so thankful that, that so many of you are on guard to protect one another. I want that to be the case. But more than that, I want, I want the, the church to be a, a place that's safe for people to say, I'm hurt. For people to say, I have been injured. And not to feel condemned or put out or, I, you know, I, Yes, it's going to be hard to hear. I mean, one of the things, one of the things that's been most, most painful, I've wept more over this message than any other that I can remember. But there are two things that really have been hurtful for me and they've been close to the church. One, there is a church two movement also that is, if you look at the church, it's just awful. And I'm not saying it's awful that people are saying that. I'm saying it's awful that anything has ever happened that would make someone say that. And the most moving, most moving thing that I've seen this past week has been testimony of the final um, plaintiff, the one who first filed against this um, gymnastics physician. And she presented the gospel to him in the courtroom. It was, it was, Breathtaking. And she could not tell it to her church. And the church needs to be that place for hurting people and for victims. First Corinthians 5 just says we can't tolerate that kind of sexual immorality among the, in the church. And we ought to be mourning about it. That's one thing that has to happen. There has to be a people who are different from the world around us. And it happens when God's people say enough is enough. And we can't, we probably can't leverage everything, but we can make the church a safe place for people. I think the next thing that has to happen is I think there has to be no tolerance for pornography. Because one of the things that I've run across this past week is that that is, that is the lead-in on almost every case. It drops people's barriers for when they'll step in and intervene. If they see abuse, it is the, an introduction to abuse for most young people. And I think that the church has to say that there's no place for that. Parents, help your children. And then I think the other thing the church has to do, and I think all of us have to, I think those of you who have been hurt need to do this. It needs to come into the light. When I said Adam and Eve are the very first, the very, their very first human reaction to this feeling is to hide, guess what? That's still how we feel. And it has to come into the open. And... When shame is spoken, this, this, this is not the Bible. This is Brene Brown. She, she's a secular person who studies shame. When shame is spoken, its power goes away. Okay, that's fine for her to say it. This is what it says in First John, 
one. It says if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The, the shame that says, I can't tell people, is replaced by fellowship or closeness with other people. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So I, I want you to think not just of the guilt that of the things that I do as all sin, but all of the sin that swirls around me that I that I do and that is done to me and that I witness all of that sin gets cleansed by the blood of Jesus when I walk in the light. And so there's an invitation to you this morning to walk in the light. We say we have no sin. How are you? I'm fine. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, and again, not just the guilt that I've done. So we're going, I want you to go back to the, the guilt and shame comparison. Not just the guilt that I've done, but confess the things that have happened to me. This sin that sticks to me. If we confess that, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Okay? So you can think of guilt, forgiveness, innocence. He takes care of that problem for sure. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So shame and dishonor and belonging and uh, honor. He restores us by taking away that brokenness and that dirt and that awful shame feeling. So one of the ways that we walk in this broken world is to confess this, these things to one another. And I'm... I'm not advocating this, you know, this big group share where we stay here all afternoon and everybody, you know, says their most awful things. It's, that's not the way it's going to work. I don't know how it's going to work out. But I just want to invite you that the fellowship that, and the, the, the community and the closeness that you long for really, part of what creates that is the vulnerability that says, I was sinned against. I've been hurt. I need the cleanse. I need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And if we confess that, if we do that, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all that unrighteousness. And that is that is my best attempt. It's saying that's how we as broken people in a broken world live in a sexually you know, um, perverted and broken uh, environment as a people of God. And so I invite you, I invite you into a relationship with God through His Son Jesus who will take care of both problems, the guilt and the shame, so that you might be forgiven and clean.
Will you join me as we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, I know that this has been harder for some people to hear than it's been for me to talk about. And it's been awful enough for me to talk about. Father, I pray for Your comfort. I pray for Your peace. pray that You might just heal um, what has uh, been wrong for so many of us for so long. And Father, myself included, I... There are plenty of things to be ashamed about. And I thank You that the blood of Jesus cleanses us. And so I pray that You would grant us faith to believe because You have told us the one who believes will not be put to shame. And so, Father, as You you begin to heal us, would You make us brave? Brave to talk to one another. Brave to live in the light. Brave to stand against evil wherever we see it? God, do you make us accepting to include people who are hurting, to love them, to love one another? Father, we just really need your grace here. And we know that in our own selves we'll just do what Adam and Eve did and we'll run and hide And so, Father, I ask for Your help. Would You make New Life Church, would You make Your church, even in America, different from the world? Would You make us a group of people who are safe, who are clean, who are accepting, who love one another deeply from the heart? So we need You, and I just ask that You would grant us Your help now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.